c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. To fat French and Fabulous. I'm Jessica. And I'm a terribly sunburned Janelle. Heat. Sunlight. I Yes, I should have known I wasn't cut out for any of those things when I agreed to a four-day trip to Washington, D.C., which it turns out is the hottest place on Earth. Hmm. I believe it was built on a swamp. I believe it was built over the fiery pits of Mordor when I got out there and it was like, oh, you know, it's 39 degrees, but it does feel like a blistering 43 with the heat. And I was like, well... <laughs> Nobody should live here, and the capital is inhabited entirely by ghouls. That's fantastic. That's great. It's, it's, apparently, they built it on a hellmouth. <laughs> I almost fainted during a dramatic reading of the Declaration of Independence, which I think in America is treason. <laughs> <laughs> Either that, it is so patriotic. <laughs> like, you just, you cannot handle, like, the, the sudden, like, rush of patriotism infusing your immigrant body and you just overcome. My hatred for King George swelled to the point that I almost passed out on the stairs of the Library of Congress. So it is a Janelle week, but instead of going with a regular unsolved mysterious disappearance, we are shaking things up with an unsolved mysterious politically motivated kidnapping. Ooh. Yeah, we, we, we've, we've attempted a couple recording sessions and Janelle's been making excuse after excuse like, Oh no, I'm too tired. Oh no, a tropical storm just hit New York. You know, at a certain point, it's just like, Janelle, you can just say you don't want to hear from me. (laughs) Oh, I got assaulted by a crazy man in a bodega. Um, (laughs) That is true. That is true. (laughs) The, uh, yeah, a a man came up to me in a bodega, told me that he had recently been released from a 13-year sentence at Sing Sing maximum correctional facility and then asked me to marry him and apparently the answer he was looking for was not no and the only thing he could use to express his disappointment was taking a swing at me while I was trying to buy tacos (laughs) so (laughs) that's I mean romantic rejection affects us all differently life in New York continues to be worth the price of the ticket the road to romance is rocky Yeah. Filled with taco-related violence. (laughs) He he didn't want to hear that I already had a boyfriend who is the least intimidating human being on Earth. So, you know. I mean, maybe he heard about, you know, that you had a type and he was just like, well, you know, that's the girl for me. (laughs) My type is not six foot three crazy-eyed ex-con who is sweating bullets in a deeply <laughs> air-conditioned bodega. That's not my type. <laughs> I don't know, that sounds pretty foxy to me. I was I was accompanied by a friend from Edmonton, and it was, I had literally, the words, no, East Harlem is a lot safer than people think, had literally just left my mouth as this man approached <laughs> us. And then afterwards, I had to shatter the innocence of a 26-year-old lawyer uh, when she was like, man, that guy was really sweaty. It was actually quite cold in there. And I was like... Ah, heroin. <laughs> it's always tragic when you have a perfectly statistically valid point 
immediately undercut by some vivid anecdotal evidence. But, um, it's not gonna matter because uh, you and I are both going to die for doing this topic, which is fine. That's fine. It's fine. Uh, fine. Everything's fine. I wasn't gonna pay back my student loans anyway. So this episode of Fat, French, and Fabulous is going to get a little bit political, so you kind of have to bear with us. Hold on to your Um, pants. The political message we're sending here, to be clear, is fuck the government of North Korea with the thousand pointy ends of middle schoolers collections editions cantanas, but- Controversial. Yeah, I know, not the most controversial message you've ever had on the show, but still, they've vanished people for less, so- I think the most controversial thing we've said is that, you know, I find Queen Elizabeth incredibly attractive, but like- I don't think that should be controversial. I think y'all are on the wrong side of history. <laughs> the correct side of history is absolutely not fantasizing about cunnilingus with a 93-year-old monarch. That's... <laughs> I can't predict the future, but I feel rock solid on that one. I will be vindicated by history. <laughs> I feel like they're going to have to send you to a penal colony. Like, that's not even a thing we do anymore, but there's probably still a loophole in Australian immigration that we will have to exploit to sufficiently punish you for the things you think about the Queen. I mean, they removed the Lays Majest laws, so they can't execute me anymore. They gotta figure out something. Execution is too good. You get the spiders. I will say, though, that by the end of this episode, I will have said one vaguely positive thing about Donald J. Trump. It's not... It's not a big positive thing. Donald Trump did something vaguely nice for the family of Megumi Yakota, which is the person we're talking about this week. But the reasons that he did it are probably not all that genuine. It's kind of like when my dog shits on the floor, but she gets it on the tile instead of the carpet. It's still... (laughs) It's a little praiseworthy, but like you really can't go overboard. But to start, spoiler alert, This week's case is discussing the most famous victim in a series of kidnappings of ordinary Japanese citizens, which were carried out by the North Korean government under Kim Il-sung, which is, for those of you who aren't big on world history, that is the grandfather of current leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. And he was the original, he was the first ever leader of North Korea after its founding. And when we talk about things that the government of North Korea does, I think people kind of have a bad habit of deciding that the North Korean government is just crazy. And they can't help but do crazy things. Like, instead of being a terrifying world power, North Korea is just sort of your kooky aunt who gets into the cooking sherry and then does an accordion solo at your nephew's baptism. We kind of treat North Korea as if they're choosing the next crazy thing to do by, like, spinning a wheel of possible crazy things. But there is sort of a method to their madness. It's not a good method. They're, they're, just, they're just not the guy from your college dorm who unicycled everywhere. <laughs> That's personal. We don't need to bring my ex-boyfriend into this. That's not nice. Just because you dated the guy who unicycled everywhere does not mean I do not get to pick on the guy who unicycled everywhere, even though he was a sweetheart. (laughs) Listen, the girl that I was with at the bodega when I got punched by a homeless ex-con, she was talking about, I'd never met this girl before in my entire life. She's a friend of a friend that I was tasked with showing around the city because she moved here unexpectedly, as one does. And she was talking about the differences between, like, she was talking about local celebrities, and she's like, oh, you know, like, New York City, I saw the naked cowboy today. Like, he's kind of a big deal. She's like, he's kind of like that weird kid who unicycled around Edmonton. And I was like, oh. (laughs) (sighs) (sighs) So it was... Uh, 
It was, it was, and then, and then I got a, and then I got a proposal from a man who told me that he would only cheat on me a little bit. Um, so I feel like it was not a good day for my love life. <laughs> having, yeah, having uh, to explain that your ex-boyfriend rode a 13-foot unicycle around the city without a permit is just, I mean, I probably knew what I was getting into when I decided to consciously date and then cohabitate with a man who played didgeridoo on the subway and didn't have a job but it's fine it's it's fine <laughs> everything's fine it's fine we're we're fine all right it's fine so north korea back to a, a topic i find less uncomfortable um, <laughs> it's 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 important to remember that the north korean government is still a government and it behaves in very deliberate ways in order to achieve specific aims that benefit the country's powerful elite they didn't just pop into the world fully formed and loving the accordion either. The creation of modern-day North Korea is the end result of hundreds of years of political turmoil and tension taking place in that region of the world. So, like, I'm not saying the North Koreans are right or that we should give them any amount of respect. I'm saying that you can kind of trace a path from historical Korea to the rise of the Kim family and everything that came afterward. Most people, I feel like most people understand North Korea has a poor relationship with the United States. And I think most people, particularly Americans, understand that North Korea has a poor relationship with South Korea. But I don't think most North Americans even realize that there is conflict between North Korea and Japan. So in order to understand this case or why it happened, you do need to have a little bit of understanding of the relationship between these countries. Yeah, so to summarize literally thousands of years of history, uh, it's not good. And it hasn't been good for a really long time. And a fun thing that I found while doing research for this podcast is that officially, statistically, Japan hates North Korea more than any other country in the world hates North Korea. 91% of Japanese citizens report having a negative or extremely negative view of North Korea, and less than 1% of the population have a positive view. Most of them, <laughs> North Koreans living in Japan. So <laughs> That's what I would expect, yeah. I'm like, is that, like, that small but significant North Korean expat population that, like, the North Koreans spend a lot of money propping up? Is that yeah, what it is? that's exactly what it, it is. It totally is. There's a couple, like, <laughs> there's, like, 200,000, I heard like, a podcast about this once. <laughs> yeah, there's, it's basically, like, a domestic terrorist cell in waiting that just lives in Japan. It's very complicated. We'll get into them, too. But there are, there are thousands of North Koreans who are still loyal to North Korea living in Japan, they're the only people in Japan that don't just virulently hate the North Koreans. And J Japan has the most negative view of North Korea of any country on the planet. No other country polled had that many people hate Korea and that few people like it. M most other people at least have like a solid chunk of people who don't give a shit. <laughs> no, there's very few people who are neutral on North Korea in Japan. And why do the Japanese hate North Korea so much? Uh, it's vastly complicated. I'm about to grotesquely summarize and abbreviate thousands of years of history, so buckle up. The Japanese and the Korean empires have been in contact with each other since the 3rd century BC. So the first couple hundred years went down kind of how you'd expect any other relationship between two fledgling empires to go down. So there was cultural exchange, diplomatic exchange, sometimes there was military conflict, Sometimes there wasn't. You get the drill. Sometimes Korea would share its religious and spiritual practices. Sometimes it would make Japan angry and would have to go sleep on the couch. They sort of peacefully cohabited, kind of, for the first few hundred years. 
And what a lot of people don't understand in the West is how important Korea was to early Japan and even to modern day Japanese culture. A lot of the early Chinese influences on Japanese culture that we still see today actually arrived in Japan via Korea. Or via Korea, because that rhymes. <laughs> it's a stupid joke and I didn't write it, but thank you English language. Via Korea also sounds like a fantastic K-pop band. Honestly, I was thinking like a mag rail train. We all have our, our little obsessions. Yeah, I just, I want my own Korean K-pop band. All the lyrics are just going to be the inventory list at Dylan's Candy Bar, run through a translator and back. <laughs> <laughs> no one will suspect a thing. Listen, I listened to Bubble Pop like half the time I was writing this episode, which made some very serious like tonal dissonance. Japan and China didn't actually have official direct contact with each other until the 7th or 8th century AD. And so before that, all the Chinese culture and knowledge that influenced Japan was sent there by Korean influence, because Korea was in contact with both of them. I mean, when it comes to China, they sort of don't have a choice. They share a border. Um, it's like being Siamese twins. Can you say that in a podcast about Asia? I don't know. I don't know. Conjoined? <laughs> Yeah, is is conjoined? Is that <laughs> Does that better? work? I feel like there's so few conjoined twins alive in the world that this isn't a pressing social justice issue. <laughs> <laughs> if you're taking to the streets to demand respect for conjoined twins, you might I'm sure both of the ones that exist on the planet right now very much appreciate your efforts, but you might need to find a different cause du jour. <laughs> we need. We should be marching on the streets. We should be chaining ourselves to the front steps of of every relevant cultural capital. And when people ask us what we're doing there, they're going to be extremely confused. I was going to say, I don't know that you need to chain yourself to the capital as much as you need to chain yourself to another person. But then <laughs> people are just going to think it's a sex thing. What is a three-legged race? but an extremely bigoted act against the noble conjoined population. Nope, I want you to go back to campaigning to fuck the queen. It was less weird. <laughs> it is culturally insensitive, Janelle. Are, are conjoined twins a culture? I have my doubts. <laughs> they, they have their own language, their own customs, their own art. I feel like you just have a colony of normal twins that you super glued together and raised in your basement. <laughs> Uh, the glue melts after a while. It's very hot. It's like a strong wire is really what you want to go with. <laughs> There's a reason you're banned from Home Depot. <laughs> Give me your sturdiest wire that's also flexible enough to wrap around two children's arms. It's not, oh, no. wrap around. That's way better than what I was thinking. Oh, dear God. I was thinking, I was thinking more like, you know, surgical needle and a... And a... <laughs> <laughs> okay, settle down, Guillermo del Toro. Like, that's enough out of you. <laughs> right, while Jessica's thinking up the human centipede six, child edition, apparently. Um, hey, I didn't say they were kids. You're the one, you're, you're projecting. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't correctly predict your human experimentation. I kidnapped twins of all ages. <laughs> you're like, if Santa Claus was also Joseph Mengele. <laughs> <laughs> That is a very peculiar, peculiar Venn diagram. <laughs> Those things should not overlap. Uh, <laughs> oh, so in particular, Buddhism was brought to Japan by Korean influence. Today, around 40% of Japanese citizens identify as Buddhist, making it the nation's second largest religion. The first is Shinto, which is sort of less of a religion and more about 
nailing pieces of paper to a temple so you can do well on your exams. It's complicated. It's it's a very lax religion. So Korean influence started to decline in Japan once the Japanese established a direct relationship with the Chinese, but they managed to have like a mostly okay international relationship with Japan for the next 1500 years. And I wrote in my notes because I'm an idiot. Be- but everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. <laughs> <laughs> because I need to stop writing my notes at four o'clock in the morning. And by Fire Nation attacked, I mean a complicated web of coinciding socio-political and military factors in the Far East reached a boiling point, which is not nearly as catchy. Um, so if you haven't looked at a map lately, North and South Korea are two halves of a peninsula that sticks out into the sea. They have the Yellow Sea on one side and the Sea of Japan on the other. And I don't know how your Asian geography is, but Korea is actually between Japan and China. It's something of a physical buffer between the two nations. It also has warm water seaports, which is something that neighboring Russia did not have in, I mean, it it didn't until the forcible annexation, full air quotes, of Crimea a few years ago, but that's that's a whole podcast. (laughs) Wow, that's like two mentions for like the specific annexation of Crimea in order to get Russia a seaport in two episodes. I know, we feel very strongly about Russia's access to warm water seaports, which is, you know... (laughs) That is a priority for this podcast. That's what a couple of metropolitan gals living their best lives in their early 20s really concern themselves with. This This whole thing makes the Korean Peninsula a very strategically important piece of land, so the surrounding countries have basically spent the last 500 years fighting each other over who gets to control it. In the late 1500s, the relationship between Japan and Korea turned sour when Japanese pirates started going out to terrorize the shit out of Korean boats, which I can I can see why that would make them mad. That would that would chill a relationship. The last time I just, you know, went out and pillaged my neighbor's boats, eh, we're not happy about that. Mm. <laughs> the scary thing is that you live in Vancouver, so there's like a 50-50 chance you're not kidding. <laughs> last time I Launched myself out onto the Georgia Strait and started started sinking local yachts. <laughs> <laughs> there is a good to fair chance that you have a rubber dinghy with a meat cleaver duct taped to the front of it that you use to just punch holes in expensive sailboats under the cover of darkness. It's entirely possible. You know, it's 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 shaped like a duck, and you know, like I have got a little, I've got a Barbie strapped to the front as a masthead, so. That's great. If it if it quacks like a duck, it fucks the rich like a duck. That's perfect. <laughs> Wonderful. You know, I've got a bar a, a boarding party that's entirely made out of uh, stuffed an- stuffed animals. Just th- throw teddy bears over the side to let them know I mean business. <laughs> this stuffed animals filled with rocks. <laughs> oh, you! If anybody should not have access to a warm water seaport, it is you. <laughs> <laughs> No good can come of it. So Japan actually invaded Korea. It's invaded Korea multiple times throughout its history, but it invaded Korea twice in the 1590s, quite successfully, during something that came to be known as the Bunroku Kecho War, and it actually managed to take over control of the entire peninsula in less than three months, which is efficient. That's what I like to see. Can-do attitude. Well, and and war crimes. Can-do attitude and war crimes. The two ingredients of success. They often go together. <laughs> is it a war crime or is it taking initiative? Think about it. I, it's both. I was gonna say can-do attitude and war crimes. The two genders. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> tag yourself. Jessica's a war crime. Um, 
But in doing so, they managed to commit some pretty heinous atrocities. And this is your warning. This is gross and sad. History is gross and sad. Japanese soldiers were given a daily kill quota during this war, and they were told to cut off the nose and ears of dead soldiers they'd killed to prove that they were meeting that quota. That's horrific enough all by itself, but Japanese soldiers pretty quickly started cutting the noses and ears off of living civilians in order to meet their quotas. Ah! I mean, on the one hand, can you imagine just having a pocket full of noses? (laughs) But on the other hand... Ah! (laughs) It's the fact that both of those things are not a scream for you that upsets me. (laughs) The way that you said... The actual cutting off the nose is pretty upsetting, but, like, just having a pocket full of noses is just sort of nonsensical. It's like the kind of dream you'd have when you have like, when you had, like, a fever when you were five. <laughs> it's, yeah, just the way you said that was just so whimsical. It's like, can you imagine paying for a latte entirely in buttons? <laughs> what about having just a messenger bag full of human ears? They're just, they're both fun. Can you imagine paying for a latte entirely in severed noses? It's New York, so yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> to be quite honest, I think that might be currency in the South Bronx. <laughs> but this this whole thing was so incredibly traumatic for the Koreans that to this day, Korean children are told to behave or the Japanese will come cut their nose and ears off. Because <laughs> the Korean parents do not fuck around. They do not. No. That's, they do not. I, I was just told that Santa wouldn't come. The Japanese will cut your fucking nose off is a whole other level. My mom used to say that if I behave, if, if I didn't behave, Santa would come, so, you know. <laughs> Clearly, you took the sanctity of your home much more seriously than I did. <laughs> I was willing to endure a home, of a home invasion in exchange for an easy-bake oven. So <laughs> A large, jolly man shall invade our domicile. <laughs> he shall eat all of the cookies and all the milk. This is a horror story. I'm sorry, I didn't realize you worked for Alarm Force at the age of six. <laughs> the hero of another of one story is the villain of another, Janelle. Oh, excellent. Great. But during both invasions of Korea, Korean naval forces were able to ultimately defeat the Japanese naval forces, and the Ming Chinese land forces drove Japanese land forces out of the peninsula, because Korea was sort of a... Uh, tributary of China for a very long time. Back when these were just empires and no formal borders had really been drawn, uh, the Ming Chinese had looked after the Koreans for quite some time. So they drove the Japanese out. Uh, The war completely destroyed Korea and Japan's relationship, and they broke off all contact for hundreds of years, which is sort of extreme. It's like when you have a younger sibling, and like you're the only one who's allowed to peck on them. Yeah, except then that sibling cuts your nose off, so you don't talk to them for 250 years. No, I meant, like, China and, uh, China and Korea. Oh, so somebody else cuts your sibling's nose off. This is, this is a very complicated metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of goddamn school did you go to, Jessica? I mean, I was homeschooled, and my siblings definitely did not cut off my nose. (laughs) I was gonna say, your, your surgeon did a wonderful job, if they did. (laughs) I mean, That's... you know, you can always just go to Home Depot, get some twine. Uh, of all the things about you that are funny looking, your nose is definitely bottom five. Ah, <laughs> oh, you're, you're sweet. 
it's mostly symmetrical. Which is more than I can say for my teeth. <laughs> or the halves of your weird little brain. Yeah. Um, so as most of you are probably aware, Japan went through a period of extreme isolationism where they essentially forbade all contact with the outside world for around 220 years, beginning in the 1630s and ending in the 1850s. When they ended their isolationism, they did so by making a trade agreement with the United States. So Japan was a feudal nation up until the 1850s, and they were very tired of being left out of the Industrial Revolution. So they ended isolationism and began soaking up as much Western influence as they possibly could and industrializing as fast as possible. This made everyone else in the area incredibly nervous. Oh yeah. It's like... It's like when that one weird kid in class decides to take up knife throwing. Yeah. yeah and then he's good at it. And it's just, Oh, you, yeah. You he's got, like, no friends and he's got a lot of time on his hands. Yeah, like, you know, the first time he kind of runs like Naruto, you sort of laugh, but then he hits 40 miles an hour and he makes, like, he hits a squirrel from 100 yards away. Yeah, that's that, that becomes very serious very quickly. <laughs> The line between pathetic and frightening is very thin. <laughs> and I straddled it <laughs> all through school. <laughs> like, the only thing that has kept people from calling the cops on me through most of my life is just the fact that I look like a toddler. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, from the years like 2005 to 2009, I put on my eyeliner like I was blacking out my under eyes for a football game. <laughs> I feel like that kind of had the uh, the intended effect where people are like, oh, she doesn't give a fuck. Oh, no, she's, she's got... I was the kid who had nothing to lose. <laughs> Just blurring the line between eyeliner and war paint. <laughs> yeah, when you're like 14 years old and you've, you're socially maladjusted and the only thing that makes you feel alive is Marilyn Manson's dope show... You, yeah, you should have a blast radius. <laughs> uh, whereas I was just really into, you know, reading encyclopedias, and th that was comfortably weird enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you dove over that scary pathetic line like it was a slip and slide. Just straight oh, yeah. pathetic. There is nothing dignified at the age of 12 about being able to recite his, all the historical battles of World War II from memory. That's not frightening, it's just sad. <laughs> oh, Well, I'm very glad the surgeon was able to surgically remove all of the underwear from your butt. <laughs> you know, it's really tough when you're homeschooled and you still get wedgied every day. <laughs> just your You're... mom looks over at you and you like, you fucking dweeb <laughs> I have no doubts that that's, that was the dynamic in the Peugeot household clean the dishes or you're getting a swirly <laughs> I, your mom didn't let the other kids in school abuse you because she wanted to be the one to do it she wanted <laughs> all the bullying to herself that's, that's what that's family's great. all about man <laughs> well only uh, she was allowed to cut my nose off. Thank you. That's fantastic. Well, when Japan started industrializing, they started eyeing Korea again as a possible point of expansion. 
other countries were really not enjoying seeing Japan westernize and modernize at breakneck pace while being buddy-buddy with the Americans, and Japan realized that because of Korea's position, Japan would be vulnerable to any superpower that decided to take over the country. So the only logical thing to do would be to get there first. So at the time, Korea was also going through a period of extreme isolationism, and they were doing only a bit of very, very limited trade with Japan and with China, with heavy restrictions on both. The rest of the world at this point had taken to calling Korea the Hermit Kingdom, which is actually a nickname that is still used for North Korea to this day. Yeah, that's older um, than I thought. Yeah, it's like when your uh, elementary school nickname sticks. It's fantastic. Yeah. You know what they used to call me? Nothing kind. Jessica, you fucking freak. <laughs> Well, you went to school with some very uncreative, uh... Hey, again, homeschool. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just your mom. This is just... <laughs> just my mother. That that might be on your birth certificate, then. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not actually Joelle. It's... It's Jessica, you fucking freak pee show. <laughs> it's a name you can take to the bank. <laughs> I mean, you have to, you know, you gotta go by your legal name. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Japan's biggest concern in all of this was that Korea, when it decided its loyalties, would ultimately lean toward China, and that did not serve their interests at all. What, just because they've never cut off your nose? Pal up with, pal up with them? Yeah, Korea and Japan were in an abusive relationship for centuries. <laughs> So Japan decided that Korea was not going to leave it, and they were going to get Korea back no matter what it took. So in 1876, Japan sent one of their most powerful small vessels into Korean water under the guise of looking for fresh drinking water, which is a flimsy excuse. Interesting. Two out of ten. I award you very few points. Isn't that part of the ocean? Yes. You see the problem. Mm. They were scouting local islands, but also, I feel like you don't take a heavily armed battleship to go look for some spring water. We all have our own ways of getting what we need. Whatever the, t the tool at hand, when all you have is a battleship, every problem looks like a nail. <laughs> <laughs> or a moving target, which is exactly what they went for. So... They knew that by being in waters and exploring islands that they weren't supposed to be exploring, that this was not going to be met well. And what they actually wanted was not a fresh bottle of Dasani. What they wanted to do was scare the fucking bejesus out of Korea, which they did. Because as predicted, Korean forts began firing on the ship, and then they proceeded to fucking obliterate those forts before leaving. So basically, the tactic here is, I'm gonna scare you so badly, you fire first? And then that's going to give me the pretense I need to just beat the snot out of you. Yeah, it's like, hit me, I dare you. It's, you know, it, it's not yeah. a healthy relationship. Korea, after this whole episode, reluctantly decided to sign the Japan-Korea Treaty of 1876, a massively uneven treaty that essentially gave Japanese citizens the right to do whatever the fuck they wanted to do in Korea. They could live there, they could open businesses, they could use all major trade routes... They could do whatever business that they wanted. And they were, while being immune from many Korean laws. So basically they just gave them all diplomatic immunity? Except like they don't even get to deport them? Yeah, they just get to be there. It also you opened up- like, like, I've heard of like first class and second class citizens, but like this is like citizen plus. <laughs> 
All the rights, no responsibilities. This is the Executive Citizen Lounge. The agreement also opened up three major Korean ports to the Japanese to use however they pleased, and it formally declared Korea a sovereign nation, which you sort of think would be a good thing, but this declaration ended its status as a tributary state of China, so they lost Chinese protections by doing this. I am a strong, independent peninsula, and definitely no one is threatening me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and I definitely need a man, and that man is the Emperor of Japan, because he (laughs) he has many pointy boats pointiest. This is an example of something called gunboat diplomacy, which is where a big power shows up to sign a very unfair treaty with a little power, and they show up in their most intimidating gunship with the understanding that they will blow the little power off the map if they don't sign the treaty. They're actually not the first country to do this. They certainly won't be the last. This is this is a... I think more... this also happened to Japan. <laughs> yeah, everybody signed a gunboat diplomacy treaty at some point. But having the power to do whatever the fuck they wanted in Korea and to park their ships wherever they pleased was not enough for the Japanese. So in 1905, they just went ahead and declared Korea to be a protectorate of Japan, which meant that the country was indirectly ruled by the Japanese. That still wasn't enough power, so in 1910, they just went ahead and annexed Korea without asking the permission of the Korean emperor. And then they just kind of went ahead and ruled it directly until the end of World War II. North and South Korea were part of Japan from 1910 to 1945. It's a bit like if just a random dude showed up at your house and was like, hey, so we're dating. And then the next day he was like, yeah, so like, you're my wife, obviously. And then like, the next day after that, he's like, I own you. But then you drop a nuclear bomb on his head the same summer that a bunch of other people storm French beaches at Normandy, and then you get a divorce. It's a perfect <laughs> metaphor. International relations isn't so comic- complicated. It's just like the, the human condition in macro. <laughs> or maybe relationships aren't that, uh, aren't that complicated. You just need access to several Jewish scientists and a lot of weapons-grade uranium. Operation Paperclip could have clarified so many relationships. <laughs> uh, that's how I'm getting out of my next one. He better fucking behave himself, or I'm getting some Columbia scientists on the phone. Oh, you're breaking up with me? Say that to a tactical nuclear strike. (laughs) It's gonna be very challenging sharing an apartment the size of Manhattan and taking him out with a ballistic (laughs) missile, but I'll do my best. (laughs) Japan did pretty much everything that every other colonizing nation does to the countries that it takes over, which is, again, nothing good. So at first, Koreans were strictly forbidden from adapting Japanese names and customs, but then Japan changed its mind and they adapted a policy of hardcore assimilation. Japanese became the only official language for business, official communication with the government, and education, and all Koreans were required to learn it. Koreans also had to register themselves with the Japanese government and change their names to Japanese ones. Although Japanese citizens had the right to do whatever the fuck they wanted to do in Korea, those rights were not extended back to the Koreans, and so those Koreans who lived in Japan did so very much as outsiders. Japan also wasted very little time in colonizer archaeology, which means they basically alternated between bulldozing culturally important sites to build new developments, carting priceless cultural artifacts off to museums against the Koreans' will, and then just sort of straight-up plundering. Ah, this is reminiscent of everything. Everything. They would sort of, like, 
find priceless ancient South Korean treasures, and then they would like dig them up and just bring them to North Korea because it was all the same country at the time, just for fun. So there's a bunch of like priceless South Korean treasures that are probably still kicking around Pyongyang somewhere because the Japanese were like, that looks like it goes there. Like they were building a Sims mansion. So a lot of cultural heritage was either stolen, destroyed, moved, or lost in the 35 years that they ran the country. Oh, what is this? A priceless national artifact? Do you mind if I just use it as a lawn chair? Like, I don't know. (laughs) It would look fantastic in my bathroom. I want to stare at your country's heritage while I poo. So during World War II, nearly 6 million Koreans were conscripted and turned into forced labor for Japan, in order to make up for all the young Japanese men who were off serving in the army. 60,000 Korean men actually died from the horrendous conditions in the years of World War II, which is a tragedy that very rarely gets discussed, even in World War II history books. Koreans were allowed to serve in the military, but it was extremely difficult for them to get in. By the end of World War II, only 2% of Korean applicants were actually accepted to the army. And how bad did the conditions have to be that the army is the preferable choice? Yeah. This is in a country that practiced suicide airplaning. Like, holy crap. And this half this theater of war was fought in godforsaken jungles in the middle of the summertime. No part of this was fun. Ah, you'd be so sweaty. Even by mid-20th century war standards, it was no fun. Ah, man, I bet the trench foot came on even faster when you're standing in the middle of an Asian jungle. You see that so excited as if you just found out your ice cream is going to come even faster. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to see people's feet rot off. (laughs) Is that so wrong? I'm getting you Netflix for Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) So Korea was freed from Japanese influence when Japan formally surrendered to the Allies at the end of World War II. Which left the Allies with kind of a dilemma, in that they had to decide exactly what the fuck they were going to do with Korea, a region that had not effectively self-governed for 70 years. And, I mean, the Americans handled this incredibly delicate situation with the finesse that Americans handle everything. Sorry, Oh, they fucked it right up a wall? Oh, they fucked it right up a wall. So at the time of surrender, (laughs) Soviet troops were clustered in the north part of Korea, along with a handful of sympathetic Korean communists, and the Americans were clustered in the south. And they very much didn't want to deal with this, so they decided, fuck it, we'll just split the country at the 38th parallel, and the top half is communist now. We'll figure out the details later. Because that's never ended poorly. America just drawing an arbitrary border in an existing power structure has never ended poorly in the history of the world. And Nothing like a strong white hand to draw lines on a map. (laughs) Yeah, don't don't fact check me on that. They'll get used to it! (laughs) It was supposed to be, like, a temporary thing, like when you put masking tape between the bedrooms of two children who are not getting along, and you sort of assume that they'll make it up later. But, I mean, that that obviously didn't happen. So for three years, the Americans and the Soviets made half-ass attempts to create a reunification plan to turn Korea back into one country, but they couldn't agree on whether that country should be communist or capitalist, So in 1948, they just said, nope, for real, fuck all of you. Fuck this entire piece of land. Fuck it right up a wall. And they founded both the Democratic People's Republic of Korea and the Republic of Korea. Only one of those countries is a democracy, and it is not the one with democratic in the name. I can see where the confusion lies. Yeah, like, the more democratics and peoples you put in a name, the more suspicious I am. 
the Democratic People's Freedom Republic of Voting, that's that that is that is a country where just everybody washes the leader's feet. That's <laughs> that is a country that is a country where they where they shoot children out of cannons to celebrate their national founding. <laughs> that is a country where sneezing is illegal. <laughs> That's, yeah, that's a country where you're not allowed to smile in, unless you're about to physically fillet the leader. That's, that's, that's how corrupt that country is. We won't just arrest every generation of your family. We will go back in time and arrest your entire genetic lineage. <laughs> we're gonna arrest an ape because it might be related to you. Like, that's how backwards that country is. Yeah, we're gonna arrest anyone who even kind of looks like you. I do have a question, though. Yes. Did they think about asking the Koreans? No. Stupid question. Moving on. <laughs> Ridiculous. It was entirely we, America. We, the Russians and the Americans, will decide. <laughs> yes, it was It was America and the Soviets deciding where these lines were going to be drawn. Oh, um, Along with a handful of Korean communist extremists, which is great, fantastic. That, again, never ended poorly. I'm I'm stunned at how many people don't realize this, but the official names of the countries are not North and South Korea. Those are nicknames. It's kind of like how Canada is the Dominion of Canada. Yes, exactly. A lot of a lot of countries are just abbreviations. The, the United States is the United States of America, and also fuck King George up a wall. You know, that's yeah. that's the whole name. It's just it's a long acronym. We just we just go with with Merca. But yeah, so the the Korea that gives you pop music and those fun clear lipsticks that have flowers inside them is the Republic of Korea. Um, Usafugu. <laughs> did you just try to do the acronym? Yeah, <laughs> it's catchy. It's Usafugu. I like it. <laughs> Good. I look forward to seeing that embroidered on a nine eleven commemorative towel. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea gives you no pop music and gives you only night terrors of nuclear missiles. Kim Il-sung was installed by the Soviets as the first, first leader of North Korea, and he decided that what his new country needed was a cult of personality propping up an autocrat, which was him. Which is great. And which is the system of governance that they've had ever since. That's still true. Both Korean governments viewed themselves as the legitimate leaders of the entire Korean peninsula, and in 1950, they decided to fight about it. Uh, they fought for three years. Nobody won. The border on the 38th parallel turned into the Korean demilitarized zone, which is a fun name for a very militarized part of the world. And Janelle's grandfather went home with night terrors that haunted him to his dying day. So it was a fun war. <laughs> it was a fun... Fun stuff. Yeah, he got he got Alzheimer's at the end, and he was, he was fighting the North Koreans in the nursing home. It was... It, oh, yeah. Oh no! <laughs> oh yeah, he'd he'd be like slinking around the corners, like pretending to like gun down the North Koreans and just scare the bejesus out of Doris. She didn't know what was going on. <laughs> it's fun. It's fun watching a Korean War veteran slowly lose his grip on reality. Is a, it's an activity. Ah, <laughs> uh, that sounds almost as fun as watching people's feet rot off. Yeah, super fun. He had to go to years of therapy because of the uh, the night terrors he got after 9-11. He, uh, he started oh, having dreams that the Koreans had come back. It's just a super fun war. So I bet he wasn't, I bet he wasn't a fan of that uh, Homefront video game. 
<laughs> I think letting a dementia patient play a military video game is is actually abuse. I think that, <laughs> I think somebody that is not an, that is not a proof form of therapy. <laughs> I, I think he would have killed Doris if we'd wound him up any more than he already was. It's not fun. <laughs> Um, so yeah, the the Koreans fought for three years over where the border was going to be. It stayed exactly where it was. It just got a little scarier, and everybody went home sad. Um, so that's about it. That's that's kind of the history of North Korea in a in a very condensed and sort of insulting nutshell. After the Korean War ended, North Korea decided fuck all of you and the horses you rode in on. They began their rapid slide into the unhinged cult nation of accordion players that we know and love today. And South Korea got busy turning into a metropolis of plastic surgery, pop music, and eerily similar-looking women. And, uh, there's still those things. So basically, to summarize why North Korea would kidnap a bunch of Japanese citizens in the 80s, which, a reminder, is what we're talking about, uh, it's because Japan has been kind of a dick to Korea for hundreds of years, and they both fully intend to die mad about it. North Korea had very little interaction with Japan after the end of the Korean War, Right up until people started going into the late 19s, started going missing in the late 1970s, which is where our story actually begins. Intro over. <laughs> in intro concluded. You now understand Korea. Congratulations. No, you don't understand Korea. They tried to breed giant rabbits for food at one point <laughs> under under that. under the government uh, of Kim Jong Il. They decided to breed giant rabbits for food. Which is a terrible idea because they eat far more than they produce. They're a terrible source of Oh yeah, of they're food. not very efficient. And additional people ended up starving to feed the giant rabbits, which were eaten anyway, uh, by Kim Jong-il. It's a fun country. They, they literally have to learn the accordion. Um, they have, they have oh, a selection a of official haircuts that they have to choose from. And at one people, at one point, Kim Jong-il sent a pamphlet to all short people inviting them to go live on an island together so they wouldn't take the gene pool. It's just, it's a fun... <laughs> it's a fun country. It's... Oh man, Janelle, you could have had your own island! <laughs> you know what? You could have been queen! <laughs> I'm gonna mail you anthrax. Queen I of the mole get... people! <laughs> your boyfriend is... could have come too! <laughs> I, I'm going to commit a small act of international terrorism at this point. <laughs> and if you... Small because it's only going to affect you, not small because I'm short. <laughs> <laughs> All right, would you say that you're going to be doing it shortly? <laughs> I you have time you. to prepare. I just hate you so goddamn much. <laughs> uh, my favorite North Korea fact is just that they have, like... They have, like, this fake shopping mall that, like, they oh, only yeah. bring tourists to. And, like, it's, like, fully stocked and it's really nice and it's, like, super great. And, like, no one actually shops there. It's just purely for show. <laughs> yeah, they they have a bunch of fake things that just make you think that they're doing... They have a fake city near <laughs> the border of South Korea that is supposed to, like, tempt South Koreans into defecting. But everybody on the South Korean side knows that it's completely fake, so it's not really working. But no. my favorite North-South Korea relationship fact is that South Korea hates North Korea so goddamn much that they set up several years ago an enormous <laughs> television screen and speaker system right on the edge of the demilitarized zone that literally just blasts K-pop into North Korea 24 hours a day. <laughs> and North Korea hates it. <laughs> 
<laughs> they're not a fan. They don't. They have resisted uh, Western it's like influence. Angry neighbors with diametric opposite taste in music. One of them's just like aggressively playing the accordion. The other one's just blasting K-pop. It's great. Also, if you are ever bored and you need a Tumblr rabbit hole to go down, I highly recommend Kim Jong Il looking at things.tumblr.com. It's literally just thousands of images of Kim Jong Il in his weird little fur hat surrounded by his weird little female bodyguards looking at things. He's just, he looked at a lot of things. He liked things. If nothing else, if we can say nothing else to honor his memory, he looked at shit. He did look at shit. Mm hmm. Taken, taken too soon? No, no. No. He also, he also, you, you also see a lot of pictures of him only from very specific a- angles because I think he had a tumor on the back of his head. Let me see. Yeah, he was like misshapen and five foot two, and just there was a lot going on there. But yeah, that's. Oh man, he could have gone to the island. Yes, that would have solved a lot of problems. He wore lifts in his shoes. He was a very insecure little man, and they were like, let's just, let's let him run a nuclear capable military. In a in an autocracy of people who've never known any other form of government, it's fine. What could go? It's fine. It's fine. It's, it's fine. all fine. It's totally it's fine. fine. So, all of this history that we've just explained to you has been leading up to explain the actual abduction itself. So, the victim Megumi Yakota was born on October fifth, nineteen sixty four, in Niigata Prefecture in the Chiba region of Honshu, Japan, which is the main island of Japan to parents Shigaru and Saki Yokota. So she was born on the side of Japan that faces Korea, which is more of a rural side of Japan. She was one of three Yokota children. She had younger twin brothers, whom she was quite close to, and she lived in a small, picturesque seaside village on the west coast of Japan. This all sounds so pleasant so far. It's It sounds like a Hayao Miyazaki novel, like she's going to find a talking goldfish yeah. in the ocean and they're going to have pleasant adventures, except... She's gonna, she's gonna get kidnapped, and it's not, yeah, so that's not fun. Yeah. Maybe the North Korean military was the talking goldfish we were looking for all along. Well, that really changes the central message of Ponyo. It was all a metaphor. Very talented man, Miyazaki. <laughs> Megumi was described as a happy and cheerful child. Her brother Takuya told ABC News, She was so curious and energetic. My brother and I always thought of her as a sunflower, as she was such a bright girl. There's not a lot of other information available about Megumi's background because she had such an unremarkable early life. By all accounts, she was a happy girl with a loving family who was on her way to a bright future when she was suddenly abducted off the street. So on November 15th, 1977, 13-year-old Megumi attended a badminton practice after school, which was typical for her. The badminton courts were a seven-minute walk from the family home because she lived in an exceptionally small town, and it was her custom to walk home after practice finished. So on that day, when Bugumi failed to return home at her usual time, her mother became concerned and walked over to the badminton courts to look for her. When she arrived, however, the courts were empty and everybody had already left. This was a very small town with narrow streets surrounded by high walls on each side and very traditional Japanese-style housing. So there was no way she could have walked past her daughter by mistake. Megumi's mother contacted police, and unlike most of the stories that we cover on this podcast... The police immediately took her quite seriously, and they launched a full missing persons investigation on the spot. Mugumi was a bright, happy child who was close with her family, and it was considered highly unlikely that she had simply run away. She's 13. She doesn't fit the demographic. Yeah, this is serious. (laughs) 
It's amazing that, like, look for missing children is something that so many people manage to screw up. It feels like the sort of thing that's important to get right. Mm. Yeah, if if a kid goes missing, try to find them. Preferably <laughs> quickly. Controversial. We're saying a lot of a lot of racy things today. Just giving We're some free advice. Crazy. <laughs> so Megumi had apparently walked part of the journey home with a friend, but they had parted at a corner near the school and continued on alone to their separate streets. This was the last confirmed sighting of Megumi, so they knew she hadn't been snatched from the school. A sniffer dog was brought in to track Megumi's scent from the badminton courts, and the, the dog did pick up a trail that led toward the Yakota house, but the trail ended abruptly 100 meters from the home. It was as if Megumi had evaporated into the air. There was absolutely no trace of her. Police searched forests and nearby abandoned buildings, but again found no trace of Megumi. An abduction was suspected because of the way that her trail suddenly disappeared, but police were expecting to receive a ransom demand for Megumi's safe n- return, and no ransom note ever materialized. The, the 70s were a more innocent time. Have we considered that maybe she did evaporate? Oh, we're going with spontaneous combustion over uh, kidnapped by the North Koreans? Hey, I didn't say she spontaneously combusted. Maybe she evaporated. Maybe she became an aerosol and just dissipated into the local air. Have we considered dissipation? To be fair, spontaneous aerosolization and kidnapped by the North Koreans both sounds like things that would be, like, floated on the History Channel if this case <laughs> was ever covered there. They sound exactly as likely. Like, th- those just sound like, you know, like, absurd suggestions you would do when you're out of clothes. It's just like, what happened to her? What, did she, did she disappear? Did she evaporate? Was she kidnapped by North Koreans? Is she, did she underground with the mole people? What? <laughs> but then it's actually the last one and everybody feels immense sadness not the mole people sorry it's the Koreans not the mole people Although at this point they're so malnourished the national average height is plummeting it's kind of the same thing um, now everyone has to live on the island there was no ransom note that ever materialized there were no leads and no clues as to where she might have gone and after being reported missing the case quickly went cold And then that case stayed cold for 20 long years. The Yakota family made numerous television appearances over the years, trying to drum up public interest in the case. Her parents appeared on television with photographs of her, urging any potential kidnappers to release her. Although interest in the case waned before it was blown wide open again in the early 2000s, the family never gave up searching for their daughter. Megumi's mother, Saki, spent 20 years going up to young women in crowds and grabbing them by the shoulders, thinking that she had finally found her daughter, only to be disappointed again. Which is sort of heartbreaking. Yeah, oh my gosh. At least if I ever went missing, the only person my mother could mistake for me is just my sister. I feel like if you ever went missing, your parents wouldn't start by calling the police. They'd start by informing the National Guard. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't, I don't think she's in danger. I think we all are. <laughs> we need protection from her. Not for her. <laughs> when you go missing, it's gonna be tragic. When I go missing, it's gonna be a national emergency. She lives in Vancouver now. Alert the, cur- the Coast Guard. <laughs> <laughs> so it's gonna... Wash up, wash up on the beach like, like Godzilla. <laughs> you're just on just as home- devastating. You're just on a homemade raft of empty milk jugs looking for feet. 
<laughs> you fucking loon. Just just in my dinghy with, with machete on the front. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I hope we have a, a disaster fund just for you. There's just there's just a government piggy bank labeled Peugeot somewhere, and it's just enough to pay for the dogs and helicopter. Oh yeah, there's there's a specific siren just. <laughs> She's loose. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel like it's capable for Jessica to be missing. The only status you can have is at large. <laughs> so Megumi's brother to 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 turn this back to an incredibly dark conversation. Megumi's brother told the press, when she suddenly disappeared, it became very dark in the family and there was no more conversation. We felt very depressed every day. Unlike how we will feel when Jessica goes missing, which will just be blind panic. (laughs) Just that itching on the back of your neck when you know you're being watched. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. So who did take Megumi? In 1997, a former North Korean spy defected from North Korea and informed a member of the Japanese Diet, which is their parliament or congress, that Megumi Yakota had been kidnapped by the North Korean government while walking home from badminton practice, which was not a call that the Japanese Diet expected to get. <laughs> at all. Bit of a non-sequitur. When a former North Korean spy calls you up to defect from North Korea, they're not like, hey, remember that middle schooler who went missing in the 70s? Well, you're gonna want to sit down. So after 20 years of silence, Megumi's parents received a phone call from Tatsukichi Hayamoto, secretary to Japanese Diet member Atsuchi Hashimoto, telling them of their daughter's fate. Which again, not a phone conversation these were people were expecting. But the story that they received at that time was that at the time of her disappearance, Megumi was standing only 300 meters from the sea, and she was just 100 meters from her family home. She was snatched and forced onto a waiting boat, which took her on a 900-kilometer journey to North Korea. Apparently, she fought so hard and made so much noise that she had to be thrown into the hold of the boat to avoid attracting anybody's attention. She reportedly spent the entire duration of the journey clawing at the steel door to her compartment and screaming, Help me, Mama, help me, I can't get out. She scratched at the door so hard that by the time she actually landed in North Korea and was taken out of the boat, she was covered in blood from her torn up fingertips and her fingernails were hanging off. Yeah, this got dark. Uh, oh. Bit of a tone shift. Huh. I just... Just show up on the shore and just, like, find a random child? Yeah, they just... We'll, we'll get into the possible motives for why she specifically was taken. I mean, spoiler alert, there are none. The North Koreans are crazy. But, um... Uh, we'll get into why why the North Koreans kidnapped ordinary civilians. Because it wasn't just the Japanese, and it, it definitely wasn't just middle schoolers. They took everybody who wasn't nailed down. <laughs> Basically, they spent several years just kidnapping anybody who was left unattended. Just treating it like a free shopping spree. Just dump it all in! <laughs> just yeah, grab th- that old man! <laughs> <laughs> take him! Get, get that florist! <laughs> Yeah, it's like if you win an unlimited shopping spree to Staples, you just get everything you can grab in 20 minutes. That's basically yeah. what this was. I mean, I don't people. really need five printers, but I'm taking them. <laughs> <laughs> They're there. I will find a use for them, goddammit. I'm gonna get all the paper clips I can eat. <laughs> Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> There's a better way to get iron in your diet, you goddamn... 
malnourished <laughs> vegetarian you. Uh, I just, it's important. It's important to supplement. Jessica wants to be able to donate blood, and hers is the steeliest blood in Canada. <laughs> They're gonna turn me away. <laughs> so even though this story was broken in 1997, uh, the Japanese public received this about as well as anybody would receive the news that a famous missing person had actually been taken by the North Koreans. Can you imagine if we found out that Madeline McCann was stolen by the North Koreans? <laughs> can you imagine if Jimmy Hoffa was just stolen by North Korea? <laughs> yeah, can, you can imagine that the public would be a little skeptical when the news broke. Uh, yeah, so- no shit. <laughs> The idea that North Korea was responsible for several unsolved Japanese disappearances was seen as something of a conspiracy theory that wasn't taken entirely seriously until the Janelle, year. What? Do you remember that Prime Minister of Australia who disappeared into the ocean? Yeah. What time? What? 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 What year was that? Mm... Give me a second. <laughs> I'm looking it up too. <laughs> Australian Prime Minister missing, first thing that comes up, yes. 1967, it's too early. It's too early. Unless he was the first. (laughs) You think the North Koreans have Harold Holt? (laughs) (laughs) They've still got him, Janelle. (laughs) Presumed drowning death, my ass. I think he was taken by a Manowar jellyfish, but you know, if if you need to. The Atlanteans rose up. If you need to believe. That he's still living happily in North Korea to get over the, what must, I'm sure is an emotionally devastating loss of a prime minister who went missing before your parents were born. Uh, if that's what you need in order to feel better, then, then you go He's a Yang. He's work <laughs> to this day. Is that your version of, like, he went to live on a farm upstate? I mean, sure, he was born in 1908. But he could still be alive. He's just the world's oldest man who definitely exists in Pyongyang. A city with no food or medical care. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, the the deer leader's very powerful. Yes. Do all kinds of miraculous things, I've heard. He went to go live on a Pyongyang upstate, and he's fine. <laughs> That's wonderful. So on September 17th, 2002, then-Prime Minister of Japan, Junichiro Koizumi, traveled to Pyongyang for the first-ever summit meeting with Kim Jong-il. The goal of the meeting was to ease some of the hostility between the two nations and to negotiate Japanese humanitarian aid for North Korea in exchange for North Korea knocking it off with the nuclear missile thing. Uh, That continues to be everybody's negotiation strategy with North Korea to this day, which is, we will give you food if you just stop. Just, just stop what you're doing. Just cut just, it out. You're making like us that, all in, incredibly nervous. It's like that weird kid at lunch with the knives, and you're just like, please, just have my applesauce. Like, I know your parents don't feed you. Please stop. <laughs> please just put the knife away. Come on, Kyle. <laughs> you can have my Oreos. Just, just, just put the butterfly knife away. If you would just <laughs> calm down. That's but that was basically the goal. They were like, "All right, let's let's give them some food and see if maybe they won't irradiate us because Japan's very sensitive to nuclear warfare, as it turns out." They have opinions. <laughs> yeah. They have concerns. But what they weren't expecting was that as when North Korea went to make its concessions to Japan, 
Kim Jong-il decided that, as a show of goodwill, he would formally admit that 13 Japanese citizens had been kidnapped in the late 70s and early 80s and taken to North Korea against their will. Oh, boy. We were just interested in the missiles, man, but all right. Okay. So you've also been taking people. Thanks for the confirmation? (laughs) Yeah, so we weren't, so your spy wasn't crazy. That's good to know. However, the government of North Korea did not ex- accept official responsibility because they don't for anything. No. Uh, Kim Jong-il claimed that the kidnappings had been carried out by, quote, some people who wanted to show their heroism and adventurism and that they had oh. not been ordered by the government itself. They just, you know, a, a, a strictly just communist... fine young people with a go get em attitude. Again, what's the difference between taking, taking initiative and a war crime? <laughs> You know, a a fiercely communist nation that keeps track of every grain of rice definitely lets civilians run off with military-grade war boats to go kidnap people on their own. That was a thing that they just let slip. Uh, sure. They're Um, like lax parents, really. Just like, you you can take the battleship, but don't stay out late. If you're gonna starve to death, you know, do it at home. Right, we control people's haircuts, breakfast, and exercise, but we don't control our own military. That's that's something different. Just a bunch of people with can-do attitudes and war crimes. The two genders. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but this is this is almost certainly bullshit, because again, North Korea lies about pretty much everything. And when I go missing after recording this episode, it will be because I just said that into a microphone. Oh. oh man, I'm so excited! Netflix special. Yes, kidnap me. The numbers I'm on gonna this be podcast famous. are going to be incredible. Once we are a tear-drinking documentary that gets uh, nominated for for an Oscar. Oh man, our it's, listens are going to be through the roof. Yeah, it's going to be called Fat French and Fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, whoever it is in Brooklyn that has listened to our entire like. Back catalog three times in the past week? Are you okay? <laughs> I will bring you a chopped cheese and a blanket. You just need to you just need to say the word. I will come check on you. It's I don't know what's wrong, okay. but we're here for you. <laughs> yeah, anybody who listens to our podcast too much, we have immediate concern for. Um <clears throat> All of you are not fine. That person no. though is especially unfine. But one of the things that we're pretty sure that North Korea is lying about is that we're almost certain that they are lying about the numbers here. Why they would admit to 13 when they almost definitely have other victims? Who fucking knows? It's a nice round number. 13? Yes, of course. The primest of round numbers. (laughs) (laughs) Makes perfect sense. (laughs) But based on information we have about cases and people who managed to escape, uh, Japan recognizes 17 official kidnapping victims that they were that they consider to have been officially taken by North Korea between 1977 and 1983. Of these, Megumi is the youngest officially recognized victim. She is also one of the victims that North Korea admitted to, so they know for a fact that she was taken. At this same summit, North Korea announced that eight of the kidnapping victims had died in captivity in North Korea and offered their apologies. I, I mean, I don't know what you get a country for killing eight of its citizens. A fruit basket, maybe? There's yeah, no fruit. Some flowers? I don't know what you can get for a country that provides all your food. Have, I, have, have a bag of rice. Um, chocolate seems insensitive. <laughs> yeah, it all seems a little insensitive. Um, 
But unfortunately, uh, Megumi was one of the eight victims that they claimed had died in captivity. So according to North Korean officials, Megumi Yakota took her own life in 1994 at the age of 29. Death certificates were produced for all eight of the allegedly deceased victims, along with cremated remains. Uh, for two of them. Upon closer inspection, however, the death certificates appeared to have been very hastily made, even by shit from North Korea standards. And the North Korean government later admitted that they basically drafted and printed them as they were, like, walking to the summit meeting. They Oof. they were made the day of, uh, which is not a good sign if you're trying oh, to convince people on. that these people really died. You can at least plan this a week ahead of time. Right? Why are you procrastinating on the death certificates? Didn't you issue one in 1994? It's, it's 2002. You had eight years to print a death certificate. You had time. <laughs> it's just sloppy is what it is. My uncle died on, on Christmas Eve of this year, and his ashes are still in the trunk of a car because none of us have gotten around to burying him yet. And even we picked up the death certificate. Jeez. Yeah, Alan Alan liked his car. He's fine. He's he's fine. It's fine. It's He's where he was happy. He's he's where he needs to be. I mean <laughs> We we left him, to be fair, we left him at the crematorium so long they started harassing us to go and pick him up. <laughs> that something something actually worse happened with my uh biological grandfather, who incidentally got kicked out of the family for being an abusive alcoholic. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, so don't feel sorry for him. He died of a heart attack somewhere in Tennessee. And my mother was the only one who who got called with an address stable enough to actually be sent the package. <laughs> That's great. You have the only fixed address. Have some ashes. <laughs> yeah, I think he's still on the hutch. Oh. I, I, can't, I can't remember if we actually sent him to somebody else. Because, like... My mom didn't miss him. <laughs> she has fond memories of the time he went. He left her out in the truck and went to go into the bar to drink. So, <laughs> so now you get to spend all of eternity wherever the fuck I leave you. <laughs> Congrats, the hutch it is. Great. You... you were a terrible father, and you were a worse ornament. <laughs> So now rabbits get to pee on you. That's how this works. <laughs> I mean, it's not that kind of hutch. Oh, I thought it was like a rabbit hutch. I thought she was just like spite spreading her father beneath the rabbits. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't. This might be a. This might be a dialect thing. Um, what would you call like a large standing display cabinet? A china cabinet. I yeah, kind of like that. Display cabinet. Oh, he's just he's just in the cabinet. Well, well he's uh, on the cabinet. My Korean War veteran grandfather died in January, and uh, he now he now lives in a novelty plastic urn that my mother oh. picked up at a Halloween store. It has a cartoon skeleton on it. It is <laughs> unbelievably macabre. Uh, my, I actually have specific instructions from my younger sister that when she dies, in the case that I do not predecease her, she specifically wants to be in a cookie jar. And she wants me to cross out the word cookies and put shale. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll do it, you fucking weirdo. <laughs> she has specified this repeatedly. I don't know if she has a will yet, but it's going in there. 
You are going beneath six feet of concrete so you cannot rise again. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting the reason I'm getting cremated is, is less out of efficiency's sake and more just to keep my body from rising. <laughs> yeah, it's insurance. That's all it is. It's a, it's a safety I'm, measure. I'm getting buried under six feet of salt. <laughs> <laughs> and you deserve every inch of it. Um, <laughs> you made this grave and you shall lie in it. But yeah, uh, back back to a dead child. Um, Woo! Well, maybe. Maybe. Because do we trust North Korea? No, we do not. Nope. Absolutely not. Um, and after the summit meeting, as a show of goodwill, North Korea allowed the five surviving kidnap victims to return home to Japan for a visit, on the condition that they be returned to North Korea after the visit. For um, a visit? For a visit. They're allowed to go home you for a visit. You stole them! <laughs> yes. Correct. And your point. It's North Korea. <laughs> you you can borrow our stolen people on the condition that you give them back just the way you found them. And Why do you want them? I, I, we will get into the possible purposes that North Korea has for all these people they take. They range from incredibly tragic to outright hilarious. But the the spouses and children of these ki- kidnapped victims were also allowed to go back to Japan, even the ones that were not Japanese. And so since they got the kidnapped victims back, and also everybody they loved out of North Korea, uh, the Japanese did exactly what you think that they did. Um, the ja- <laughs> yeah, we're totally gonna t- make them go back. Pinky promise, and behind their back, they've just got their, their fingers crossed so hard they're losing circulation. <laughs> yeah, you, you really don't need a master's in international relations to, under- to predict what was about to happen here. This is the most obvious shit in the world. This, oh, is, not a, this is not a third act plot twist. <laughs> North Korea are not good at diplomacy. I think we've firmly established that. They are as gullible as they are terrifying. The Japanese government initially agreed to the conditions, and that as soon as the victims were back on Japanese soil, they told the North Koreans that they're not giving them back. Because, duh, of course they're not giving them back. obviously not. Can you imagine the political backlash that would come from reuniting missing people with their families after 30, 20 to 30 years, and then you just rip them out of their loving mother's arms and give them back to their kidnappers. There's that's parts of Japan would still be on fire. <laughs> no, there's not a chance. There was the Japanese public were outraged to find out that this ridiculous conspiracy theory was true. They were outraged that J- Japan even by nationalist country standards standards. Japan is a very nationalist country. They feel very strongly about their borders. They feel very strongly about fellow Japanese citizens, as you should. And they were outraged that the North Koreans had been coming on to Japanese soil to steal literal children and adults. Some of most of the victims taken were in their twenties. The backlash toward because the Japanese public were told that these people would have to be returned. And the backlash to that idea was so great that there was not a chance the Japanese government could have returned these people to North Korea without some sort of riot. It'd be untenable. But this just reminds me of, like, a kid who stole your ball going, like, you're, you're like, hey, can I have my ball back? And they're like, well, you can look at it, but you have to promise. So it's like, fuck you, man, you stole it. <laughs> and, like, like, just the fact that Korea, like, North Korea 
doesn't appear to be thinking of these people as people. Like, they're citizens, man. Yeah, you break it, you buy it applies to gift shops, not to children. It's not. That's not how this works. You don't just get to psychologically ruin people and then decide they're yours forever. That's not how this works. Um, so the Japanese government promptly announced that North Korea could not have these people back. And as soon as Japan announced that they would not be returning the victims, the North Korean government suspended all further talks, saying that their trust had been violated. Japan then retaliated in turn, because this wasn't none of this was smart, on North Korea's end, and they began imposing strict economic sanctions and raiding Japanese organizations with ties to North Korea, including that shadowy organization we talked about earlier that is North Korea's unofficial ambassadors to Japan. They started just raiding their offices looking for signs of domestic and international terrorism or for any evidence of the kidnappings. They didn't find any, but they just took joy in bullying these people anyway. Yeah, like, the power dynamic here is not great for North Korea. It's it's not. They, they really, really misjudged how this was going to go. The Japanese government also began to openly doubt that the eight supposedly deceased victims were actually dead. North Korea had been very deceptive since the beginning, and they pointed out the all the evidence produced, which at this point had just been, they just started with the death certificates. They pointed out that the death certificates had been haphazard and shabby. So in 2004, North Korea tried to address this doubt and prove that they were telling the truth about the deceased victims by sending the Japanese government what it claims were the cremated remains of two Japanese abduction victims. One of them was said to be the remains of Megumi Yakota. The other was Karu Matsuki, a 19-year-old college student who was lured to North Korea by a spy while traveling in Europe. Hell of a way to go! The ways that people were lured to North Korea are fascinating, and we will discuss them in part two of this episode, because it's the links that they go to are incredible. Don't trust shadowy Korean people who offered you a free trip to Japan, is the, uh, oh, man. Is the takeaway. I know, you must have shadowy J- Korean people offering you free airfare on a weekly basis, but I urge you no. They're just so friendly. Don't be another another government's problem. You're you're just Canada is just figuring out a strategy to deal with you. <laughs> Can you imagine that PSA? Don't accept airplane tickets from overly friendly North Koreans. Don't be a statistic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it might have helped. Um, like I said, we'll get into it in episode two. There's way too much content to fit all this into one episode. That's not you know four hours long. So the Japanese government carried out DNA testing on the cremated remains and concluded that neither of the ashes belonged to the stated victims. We'll get into the validity of DNA testing on cremated ashes in part two, but that was the official statement that they made to the public, that the DNA test did not match and that they didn't believe North Korea that these people were dead. So basically, the North Koreans could not have made a bigger miscalculation in the way that they handled these abductions if they had fucking tried they would have been better off gifting Japan with accordion solos and hoping for the best. They had hoped that that making these admissions would improve their relationship with Japan because they thought it would make them look honest and trustworthy. It turns out that admitting to kidnapping dozens of innocent people does not make you look trustworthy. Funny enough. Hmm. Weird. Instead, they enraged Japan, destroyed the relationship, and made themselves look less trustworthy than ever. Hatred of the North Koreans and a desire to learn the truth about the remaining victims continues to fuel pro-nationalist and pro-military sentiments in Japan to this day. 
The bad news is the outcome of the situation was so disastrous and embarrassing for the North Koreans that they stopped releasing information and people, and they're not likely to release any more information or people anytime soon. So this is kind of where we're going to end off part one of this episode. But in part two, we're going to get into what we know about Megumi Yakota's life in North Korea, her purpose there, what we think happened to her. But it's important to know that a lot of the we don't have firm answers about her fate. We, we do know for sure what she was doing there for a time, but we don't have any definitive answers because North Korea shut down, all we have to go on is testimony from people who managed to escape, as well as testimony from people who were allowed to visit their relatives under supervision from North Korean guards. So there's a, there's a lot to go over, but um, yeah, it's going to be... Uh, it's going to be a blast. Yeah, it's going to be questionable and deeply unsatisfying for everybody, which is just a sex position yeah. I called the Janelle. <laughs> I bet there's not even going to be any rotten feet. No, not a single rotten feet, just more questions than answers and a deep sense of emptiness, which again, <sighs> sex position called the Janelle. <laughs> Looking forward to it. <laughs> uh, we hope that you've... I don't know if we can... Uh, the word is enjoyed. We Enjoy. hope that you've consumed this episode. And we will see you next week. I am Jessica. And I'm still Janelle. And we are Fat, fat French, French, and, and Fabulous. fabulous. You